Welcome to Lions Radio Network, where the show takes you on a roaring adventure with entertaining and stimulating topics focusing on entertainment, sports, business, world news, along with many other topics. Whatever your interests are, you will find them right here on Lions Radio Network. I guess on the West Coast because it's still about 11 o'clock there, I believe. Anyways, today I have the most fantastic guest. I'm so excited. He's an author of a book called Grateful Guilt, Living in the Shadow of My Heart. And his story is truly, I mean, heartbreaking, amazing, fascinating, inspiring. I mean, all these different things. He's been told he wasn't going to live on three different occasions, and he's beaten it every time. He's a two-time heart transplant recipient. Um, It's just an amazing story, and I don't want to wait any longer. His name is Stephen Taibbi, and Stephen, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Donna. I'm glad you're having me. Thank you. Your story is true. You know, I started reading this, and I'm going, oh, my God. First, I want to tell everybody a little bit about your background on you know, being a child and going through all these surgeries, can you kind of give the listeners a little bit of background about what what you've gone through? Okay. On the day I was born, I had my th- first three surgeries um, to, um, to correct a birth defect, which they didn't really correct. They thought they were correcting it, and for another smaller thing. But when I was five, I was diagnosed with um, ASD, atrial septum defect, and that was commonly known as a hole in the heart. And that mm-hmm. was the cutting-edge um, surgery of the day. That was like um, the beginning of heart transplants back then, 1958, we're talking. And um, the survival rate for children for that was uh, 50%. So I had my first my first open heart for ASD repair at 5. And when they went in, they found out that I had a second hole. And they closed me up after fixing one hole and sent me home and said, oh, if he survives the year, we'll, we'll attempt the second hole. And... Um, at that time in 1959, no one had lived through two open hearts for ASD repair. I was the first. And wow. uh, then, then my parents were told, well, he made it through this, but he'll never get past 10. Then they were told that he would get past 10, but he'll never get out of his teens. When I was 16, my doctor told me about what was going on with me because um, he knew my mother would tell, him, tell me anyway. And I, had, I was given a year to live when I was 16. And... Um, I almost died on my 17th birthday, and uh, then when I was brought to the hospital, they said to my parents to make arrangements. I wouldn't make it through the night, and um, then I made it through that, and my doctor said to me, well, you did this. He goes, but I doubt you'll get out of your 20s, and then um, I got to my 30s, and my doctor said, I don't know how you did it, but you beat the whole thing. Go out and live. And then I got married, and I think this is the real cause. And I got married, and uh, <laughs> and it I could thought, be. It could be. I know. <laughs> you know, I've been married, I've been married for two, almost 28 years, but with the wind chill factor, it feels like you know 48. But anyway, um, <laughs> so we, so they um 
see that uh, I'm slowing down, I'm gaining weight, we can't figure it out. And then I found out that I had something called idiopathic cardiomyopathy, which is doctors speak because they cannot just say it means unknown. It's a, idiopathic means from an unknown agent. So they just can't say it's from something we don't know. They have to go, oh, it's idiopathic. I had to look it up. And cardiomyopathy. Can you say that? Can you say that ten times fast? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> and I, I, I looked it up. I found out what it was. It actually annoyed me that they had made me look it up for the word for meaning unknown. You know, but um, that but that's what took my that's what took my heart. My heart was fine, and then it caught a virus, and um, right. so that so that made me lose my first heart, and then um. My donor heart, I lost 15 years later. That was three and a half years ago um, due to something called transplant coronary artery disease. It's a kind of artery disease that only transplants get. And it, uh, is, it's similar to regular coronary artery disease, except for instead of it being plaque, it's inflammation. And it's a form of rejection. So it had nothing to do with my lifestyle, had nothing to do with my diet. It just happened to do with the heart had lasted as long as it was going to last. And um and I got another and I got my second heart transplant uh 3 years ago. That's just absolutely amazing. And you did meet the one of the families of a donor and we'll talk about that in a minute, but I really want to talk about how you stayed afloat mentally um having to deal with this your whole life. Yeah, it's been a challenge, but you know, that's that's what life is, isn't it? Life is a challenge, no matter who you are. So, um, when I was a little kid, I I was told by my parents that I had to be a good boy, that I couldn't resist, that I couldn't fight, that I couldn't yell. Um, and so, they were doing these terrifying things to me, and this situation was terrifying. I was put in a ward my first night. I was my, my first month. I was in a ward. And um, that's terrifying to be in a gigantic room to try to sleep that's not really dark with lots of noise and, you know, yeah. kids screaming and stuff. Um, um, so I had nowhere else to go but to disassociate. And I, and I built a cave in my mind, and I used to run into that cave, and they, they couldn't hurt me when I was in that cave. I mean, they'd do things to me without anesthesia, and I wouldn't make a peep. Um, oh, and, and And then after that, when uh, my parents picked up the idea that they weren't going to let me think I was sick. They weren't going to treat me like a sick child. And I just um, expanded on that. And, uh, you know, like I told you, they, they, they told me they didn't think I'd get out of my, you know, they thought I'd die at 10, 12, like somewhere around that. And at around that age, when I'd feel my heart going bonkers, you know, you could feel it. You know, um, I'd go sit down someplace. I'd cross my legs like an Indian fashion. And I would... Um, yell at my heart and I'd tell it to get back to work and I, you know, of course this is in my mind but I'd be yelling right. at it so I'd be calling it a lazy bum and I'd be you know, telling it to go back to work and then I'd go back to, and do the thing that made my heart bother me in the first place and I just kept doing that I called that bullying my heart and that was one of the techniques I figured out on my own to do and I honestly think that that saved my life yeah, I mean, you do have to change your – It's I, I can't imagine – somebody like you who's gone through what you have, I can't even fathom. I would be so angry. I just don't even know how I do. But yet so thankful on the other end that there's these people that were able to donate a heart to you. Um, tell us about – I find this fascinating, the out-of-body experience. What happened during that time, and, how, and what, were, what was happening at that time that you had the out-of-body experience? 
I was at my, that was my 17th birthday. And um, my mother was home from work that day, and we were going to celebrate my birthday together. Um, but I'm I'm a night owl, and uh, so I just couldn't wake up that day. I was having a rea- uh, an allergic reaction to the drug they had given me, quinidine, and um, and I woke up in time from my alarm to take my next dose, my next dose, and I had it in my hand. And everything in my body said, don't take it, don't take it. Had I taken it, we wouldn't be having this conversation. And um, I put the the pills back in the bottle because I always listen to my body. And um, I lay down in bed, and um, my mother came in, and she could tell that I was in real distress. We had already figured out. We would already called the doctors. My my heart rate was was, um, alarmingly low. And the doctors said uh, he's having a reaction to this drug. He's so fragile we can't even move him. They said if they told my mother if he makes it through the night, bring him in tomorrow. That's literally what she was told. And um, so I knew that something was going on, and I told my mother to get out of the room. And uh, this is—I don't believe in miracles in the normal sense of like poof something happens. But this was mm-hmm. a miracle. My, my mother listened to me and left the room. I needed that time to be by myself to fight. And. Um, and then I had a heart block incident, and it, it was it was like wham! My, my it was like somebody took a sledgehammer to my chest. I literally jumped in the bed. I was flat out, you know, spread eagle in the bed, laying in bed flat, and my literally jumped out, of, you know, jumped up in the bed when that thing hit me. And next thing I know, I hear this this click, and I feel myself separate. And now I'm looking down at me, the part of me that's rising up is looking down at me, and the part of me that's looking up, because I never lost consciousness, sees a blank ceiling, but it can see what the other me is seeing, and and that was, and I just went up, I rose up through the ceiling, I could see my mother in the backyard talking to my neighbor, I described everything to her perfectly afterwards, and I couldn't see her from my room, um, even if I wanted to, and that's when we both knew that everything I had that had happened was true. I kept rising up through this darkness, but it was so blissful. I was so I was like, oh, all right, if this is death, this is great. I'm I'm fine, right? Until I started mm-hmm. to slow down, and there was this bright light way, way, way far away that I just knew I wanted to get to. And then suddenly I start to slow down, and I stop in this the blackest black you could imagine, the coldest cold you could imagine, and I'm terrified now. I'm like, why am I here? And then I felt the parting of the ways. And something came up to me from behind me, and the way I've always described it, in a voice I never heard but I recognized, said, and this is a quote, no, go back. You're not ready yet. And next thing I know, wow. on the bed, on the, the part of me on the bed says a word that you're not supposed to say on radio because I didn't want to go back <laughs> at that point. I really didn't. The part of me on the bed didn't realize I was stuck. And... um and I don't know what made me do it. I thought, I call it divine inspiration. I took my arms and I flung them across my chest. It was probably the last thing I was physically able to do. And it got my heart going again. And every time my heart beat, I, I came down a step. It was kind of like the, the old-fashioned carjacks. And I, I, I you yeah. know, beat down, beat down, beat down. And, um, and that first beat was unbelievably painful because my blood had gone stasis. You know, it had stopped moving. And uh, then I finally get back, I'm face-to-face with myself, and then click, I'm whole again. And um, and that was that was the story of that. That's crazy, quite, but quite, you hear these I, stories I, I, a lot. 
I, I still think that's the best gift I've ever been given for my birthday. I, you know what? I have to say, yeah, actually, because it's saying, hey, and, and you can carry on something for people that have a belief in a higher power that there is something bigger out there waiting for us, and it's okay. Like, it's going to be okay if you pass away. It's, it's, it's something um, very powerful. I mean, in a story, when people tell these kinds of stories. Um, you know, you talk about also meeting the donor family. That had to be just crazy. What was that like? And was this for the first heart or the second heart? The first heart, I wrote two or three letters. They never responded, which is yeah. a common response. Most donor families do not respond. According to one legacy in L.A., I had my second transplant in L.A. Uh, according to them, uh, only 3% of um, people who write notes get, a, get an answer from the donor family. Because the donor wow. family, they're hurting and they just want to, you know, they're glad they get the note because they want to know you're grateful. And anybody right. who's had a transplant of any kind, if you don't write a note, please, don't be don't be a jerk. Somebody gave you a gift. Write a note, you know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just, just common decency. Uh, so um, I wrote I wrote two letters. And I didn't get, I, re, I wrote my first response right after I got out of the hospital when I was still in L.A., and um, then I wrote another one, and then I was like, okay, I I'm not going to bother them because you know they're they they they're choosing not to be um, contacted, which is what most of them do. And then I get a phone call from one legacy, and they say the donor family wants to answer you. Is that okay? I'm like, oh my gosh, yes. And it was like pins and needles until the letter got here. It took them like three weeks to send it. One legacy. Um, I don't know why. There's all this stuff they have to go through. So it's not like they were being inefficient or anything. I, One Legacy is the best um, organ procurement organization in the nation, honestly. Um, and um, I got this letter, you know, this you know, one of those packets with the letter is inside because they're not right. allowed to. We were not allowed to know each other's names or our addresses or our phone numbers or anything. So everything was done like it was uh, I spy or something. I opened mm-hmm. this letter. And it's in the mother's handwriting. It's in her cursive <gasps> handwriting. And I am like, she's telling me that um, the, 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 the man who I got the heart from was 36. I knew that already. They tell you that it's a male and he was 36. That's all they'll tell you in the hospital. Um, but now right. they'll tell me that he left behind four children. And mm. that, uh, and I'm just like, you know, wow, what the heck is all this? You know, and I am... I have got tears streaming down my face while I'm holding because I finally knew his name. I really needed to know his name um, because, you know, we set a table for him every every holiday and, you know, he's in my oh. prayer. So, you know, I put I put the letter against my chest because it was her handwriting. And and I was like, I was like, and I now knew his name. I'm like, David, this is your mother's letter. This is, you know, she loves you. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying this out loud in my kitchen, rocking back and forth, holding the letter. Wow. And um, it was kind of emotional, I have to say. Oh, I can't even imagine. And then about nine months later, we went out to L.A. for a friend of mine's daughter's wedding. And uh, because I live in Long Island and uh, we decided to, you know, we the family had let us know they wanted to meet me, and we decided we'd all meet. I met them at their house, and there were 12 other people there, 
And, uh, I mean, the whole family wanted to meet me. I, I met the entire family. I was just out in L.A. a few weeks ago. And I met the entire family then. But this time I got to meet 12 of them. And they couldn't be the nicest, the nicest, nicest people ever. And uh, the reason why the mother wrote the letter was because um, David had just gotten divorced from his wife a little while before he died. And the, th the fact is, is that he walked home, walked into his house one day, and there was his mother, his father, and his sister. He walks into the house, grabs a wall, and falls down. He had a brain aneurysm right in front of them. Oh, my God. Right. So, um... So I was at the spot where he died. I was I held his ashes, um, you know, and um, the 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 ex-wife asks me. She goes, uh, by the way, his name is David David Jokobo. So it's let's honor Mr. Jokobo because um, he's a hero. He saved not just me but a lot of other people, um, and the family. And the mother is Susan Jokobo because she's the one who gave the consent. Um, but. Uh, the the, the ex-wife was sitting at the table, and she goes to me, so uh, were you a little afraid coming out here? I go, yeah, I was. And so she goes, what you were afraid of? I went, I was afraid you were, want to go, you were going to want the heart back. <laughs> it's been that kind of a relationship. We really, and, and both the mother and the ex-wife said to me, you are family now. And they treat me like family, and it's wonderful. It's really, it's still bizarre, because it's bizarre for both of us. I mean, because, you know, think about it. You're, there's this guy walking around in your house, and he's got your son's heart in him. And your yeah. son is dead, and he's not, you know? It, it's got Do you feel differently? Difficult. You know, they talk about people, like, spiritually that are recipients, are transplant recipients, and that they pick up certain uh, mannerisms or feelings or tastes from the person that they actually – you know, from the donor. Do you feel any of that? I mean, how does that work with you? Or is I, I, just... never, I never believed that. You know, I used to be the vice president of Transplant Speakers International. We were a very large transplant organization for 16 years. And um, oh. I've met thousands of people who've had transplants, literally thousands. And I, me and the other people who are at the top of the organization, none of us ever, and we were all transplants, and none of us ever believed in that. I do believe that the spirit can come and visit. I'm convinced of that because that happened to me. But I don't think that, like, because you get an organ, you're going to get the tastes or the talents of somebody. Um, right. I, I think it's more has to do spiritually than it does physically. That's my thinking. I could be wrong, you know, but that's the way I feel. Well, I think it's a beautiful story that you were able to meet them. and um, Oh, it's wonderful. Kept... We love each other now. I mean, it's really sensational. Wow. I, I love these kinds of stories. I think your story, um, this, people that write books like this, you know, they become movies. So I'm hoping that you could do something with this. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm hoping that this becomes a movie, too. It could, I want this to spread as far as it can because I'm already getting them greatest um, letters from people telling me how it's helped them. And that's really why I wrote the book originally was because, uh, you know, the book is written because I'm surviving because I have done nothing but have, have strategies. I don't go into a doctor's office without a strategy. If I'm going to stay in a hospital, I employ strategies. And if you want to survive, if some, anybody out there, if you're facing any challenges, 
Develop strategies for your survival. That's what I did. And you can do what I did. Anybody can do what I did. I'm not a genius. And 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 have strategic things about how you're going to survive. Become an active part of your healthcare team. You are actually the linchpin in that healthcare team. It's all up to you. Your attitude. Your attitude is going to save your life or maybe make it fail. And it's up to it's up to each person who's sick to take command of their sickness, to own it, and to say, okay, I'm going to do this with it, and I'm going to do everything that I can. I'm not going to be a jerk in the hospital. I'm not going to yell at doctors. I'm not going to, um, you know, um, be demanding. You're going to be the opposite. And, and you do those things, and you get better. That's At least that's what I think. It's worked for me. Yeah, and you talk about being your own advocate and um, having dignity and and things of that nature in the book, and I think it's really important. I hope everybody picks this book up. Um, again, uh, it's Grateful Guilt, Living in the Shadow of My Heart, uh, Stephen Taibbi, and you can find it on Amazon and Google Books. And, Stephen, thank you so much. You are absolutely fascinating, and thank you so much for sharing your story Organ donation is so important. Do you um, can you give anybody advice on where they can go to find out if they're if they can be an organ donor? I mean, obviously, someone would have to pass, and that would be on their driver's license saying I'm an organ yeah, just, donor or just, just in a living your, will. Just go to your DMV and get it on your license. Tell all your family that what your wishes are, even if your wish is not to be an organ donor, which is, of course, not what I want that to be, but if that's what your wish is, then I want that wish to be followed. And if you don't tell people what your wish is, your wish won't happen. So, you know, or could not happen, let's say. So if you don't want to be an organ donor, tell everybody you love that that's what you want. You don't want to be one. If you want to be an organ donor, tell everybody you love that that's what you want. You want to be an organ donor. But let everybody know. And if you really want to make sure it gets on your license. And don't think that you're too sick or something. They can take the most amazing thing. So just let, let let them decide. Right. But at least let people know. Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time. Absolutely. You are fantastic. You are such a great guy. And thank you for sharing your story with the world. And I really do hope this goes even farther so people can learn from your experience in your life. Thank you, Donna. I really appreciate it. All right. You have a great rest of your day, Stephen. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Everyone, that was Stephen Taibbi, and please pick up his book. It's uh, his author pen name is Stephen G. Taibbi, um, and the book uh, is called Grateful Guilt: Living in the Shadow of My Heart. It's absolutely fascinating. Please pick a copy up. Thanks again for tuning in, everyone. <laughs>